0: The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org.
1: Thank you. Good morning Bereans. Good morning. Welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. We have been periodically working our way through Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount of Olives, commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. I've been kind of just throwing one in here and there, and since we finished 1 John last week, I thought we'd do another episode of our study here in Matthew 24. In this chapter, in Matthew 24, Yeshua is answering the questions that His disciples have asked Him on the Mount of Olives. Now, after pronouncing judgment on the nation Israel in the end of chapter 23, Yeshua and his disciples leave the temple. And as they're leaving the temple, Yeshua tells the disciples that the temple will be completely destroyed. First two verses say Yeshua left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, all right, you got the context. We're talking about the temple here. He leaves the temple. They point out the buildings of the temple. He answered them, You see all these? That's the temple complex he's talking about. Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This would have been shocking to the disciples. The temple was a fortress. The temple was the dwelling place of God. The temple was the center for everything for the Jews. And he says, This whole thing's just going to be destroyed. So in response to this, the disciples ask, they go across to the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they ask, when and what will be the sign? Now as we've previously demonstrated, and if you haven't heard the previous messages, Go back and listen to them, okay? It'll catch you up where we're at here. The disciples viewed the destruction of the temple, the paracy of Christ, and the end of the age as synchronous events. They're all happening at the same time. What Will be the sign of your coming and the end, because they knew that His coming would mark the end of the age. So we got the destruction of the temple, coming of the Lord, end of the age, synchronous events. So, the disciples' question here is basically twofold. When will these things happen? And what signs will indicate they're about to happen? Now, in verses 4 through 51, Yeshua answers their questions. Please keep this in mind as you read Matthew 24. The Lord is answering his disciples' questions. He's not talking to you, he's talking to his disciples. They ask questions. He's answering those questions. Yeshua told them a number of things that would happen before the end came. He said the gospel would be preached to all the world. We've already talked about that. They would see the abomination of desolation that Daniel had spoken of. Luke tells us that the abomination of desolation refers to the Roman armies surrounding Jerusalem. He tells us there would be a time of great tribulation. Then immediately after the tribulation, they would see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven. To summarize and illustrate what he has been teaching, he goes on to say, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. James Stuart Russell said this, Words have no meaning if this language uttered on so, such a solemn and solemn an occasion and so precise and express in its import does not affirm the near approach of the great event which occupies the whole discourse of our Lord. I agree. If this language doesn't mean that the things He spoke of are near, it doesn't mean anything. Alright? It doesn't mean anything. He says, from the fig tree learn a lesson. Now, a popular interpretation of this passage considers the fig tree as a type or an illustration of Israel. According to this view, the fact that Israel became a nation on September 12, 1948, constitutes the budding of the fig tree and may be taken as proof that the Lord's return is near in our day. We'll discuss that a little further on, uh, later on. He goes, I think that the Lord is simply giving us a universal illustration here, uh, which the parallel account of Luke kind of makes clear. He says in Luke 21, 29, and 30, and He told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. In other words, we're just talking about trees. You can take the fig tree, you can take a different tree, just trees. As soon as they come out and leaf, you see for yourself, and you know that summer's already near. So He's saying, this is an illustration. When you see leaves on a tree... They begin to come out, you know, the summer is near. I don't care if it's fig tree, any tree. Alright? You can understand that. So Yeshua said that just like you know the summer is near, when you see the leaves coming out on the tree, so also, when you see these things, know that He is near at the very gates. So also, when you see these things come to pass, that He's been talking about in this chapter, the gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven... You know the end is near. It's just like someone standing at the door about to enter. Now, James used the same illustration of standing at the door to speak of the nearness of the Lord's return. Look at James 5, 7-9. James says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it? until he receives the early and the latter arranged. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Who is James talking to? He's talking to, if we go back to James 1, it's always important, you know, I mean, when you're reading something, who are, you writing, who are you writing to? Who are you talking to? You ever get a letter and not know who it's from? What do you do? You go right to the end, right? Who wrote this to me? So I know... Some context and kind of understand it better james is talking to the 12 tribes in the dispersion in the first century all right that's really important and he says the coming of the lord is at hand he says in the beginning be patient brothers until the coming of the lord so you guys in the first century be patient and the coming of the lord is near so this is the first century and he's telling them the coming of the lord is at hand at hand is from the Greek word engedzo, which means near or at hand. James goes on, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now the Lord standing at the door meant that his coming was near. Matthew twenty four thirty three says, So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Gates here is the Greek word thura. Same word used in James 5.9 for door. The, the same word gates, door, same thing. He's standing, he is near, he is at the door. He says near here. That means near is the word engus, which means it's close, it's near. Soon to happen. Now, in the context of James 5, we have Christians who are suffering under the persecution of the Jews. In the midst of it, they're told to be patient until the coming of the Lord. Now, futurists would have us believe that in just 2,000 plus years, the Lord will come and help them out. Is that comforting to anybody? I mean, how how would that be comforting? Okay, let's put it this way. Let's say that you're suffering. I don't know, you're going through a bad time. Okay, because of COVID, you lost your job. You can't work, so you're, you're laid off. You don't have money. Uh, your landlord can't make you pay because it's COVID, all right? But the car company's coming after you, and you don't have enough money for food, and you're just in a terrible situation, and you receive a letter or a phone call from a rich relative that tells you, hang on, brother. I'm coming soon to help. If you had any expectation that it would be a couple thousand years, would you care what he had to say? If He doesn't come while you're still alive, how does that help anybody? Because you would expect Him to come soon. He said soon. And you would justifiably look for Him soon because if He doesn't... And listen, if the Lord didn't come in the lifetime of those people that James wrote to, then the exhortation to hang on and be patient. They can't be patient for 2,000 years. They can't do it. None of us could. He was coming to them to relieve their misery. Very important that we understand that. Verse 33 says, So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near. Well, the King James puts it this way. It is near. Well, is it He or is it it? Well, let's throw another one in there. The time is near. Okay? Complete Jewish Bible. So which is it? Well, the pillar New Testament commentary states this. It is also possible to understand the meaning as he is near, but this does not seem nearly as probable as it. The reference is to the whole series of events, not simply to the central person. All right? I tend to agree with that. <clears throat> the question about what the it or he is near is cleared up in the parable passage in Luke. Luke says this, twenty one thirty one. So also, when you see these things taking place you know that the kingdom of God is near. That's the it, the kingdom of God. And he, of course, is the reigning king of the kingdom of God. Now, so, all right, we know from other verses in the New Testament that the kingdom of God had already come. But he says it's near. So if it's there, how can it be near? Well, again, in that transition period, that 40-year period, we have the already but not yet. They had certain things in a down payment form, but not in a complete form. He says this, he says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. He was casting out demons, so he said the kingdom of God is here. In Luke seventeen twenty, he says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, in our text in Matthew twenty four thirty three. He's referring to the full manifestation of the kingdom that would come in power and glory in 8070. When he came in destruction of Jerusalem, the full blown kingdom will be consummated. Now, verse 34 Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. Yeshua here, very plainly, very clearly tells his disciples, He said, I say to you, who's the you? The disciples, not you, not me, the disciples that he's talking to in this context. All right. I say to you, he tells them that all the things he had just mentioned in the previous verses would come to pass in their generation. Now, if you study the context, you will see that this includes the gospel being preached to all the world, the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the second coming of Christ. This is so clear that it greatly troubles those who hold to a futuristic eschatology. In his essay, The World's Last Night, C.S. Lewis, talking about Matthew 24-34, first of all quotes an objector as saying this, The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have been proven false. It is clear from the New Testament that, They all expected the second coming in their own lifetime. I agree with that. Now, I don't agree with the first part. The apocalyptic beliefs of the first Christians have proved false. No, I don't think they proved false. Okay? But he says it's clear, and people, I think it is clear from the New Testament, they expected Christ to come in their lifetime. Now watch. And worse still, they had a reason. And one which you will find very embarrassing. Their master had told them so. He shared and indeed created their delusion. So he's saying they were deluded and the Lord was deluded because He taught them this. Okay? Uh, That's crazy. He said in so many words, this generation shall not pass till all these things be done. And he was wrong. You know, couldn't you maybe say I'm not sure I understand this passage. But when you say the Lord is wrong, guess what? Then throw your Bible out. You, you're, you don't need to waste your time. If the Lord's wrong, if he's not inspired, he's a false prophet, and you're just wasting your time. He clearly knew no more about the end of the world than anyone else. Wow. Now let me ask you this. Do you see in, this last, in the last verse here, do you see why this objector's view is off track? What? Right, because he knew no more about the end of the world. The Lord wasn't talking about the end of the world. If you got the wrong subject, I mean, obviously, if you think, oh, the Lord's talking about the end of the world, then we're not going to have a discussion, did it happen or not, because we're here we are in the world. So we don't need that discussion, right? But he's not talking about the world. And world is a bad translation when you see it in the King James. I own is the Greek word. It's age. An age can end, and the world goes on. But if the world's ending, and if that's what he's thinking, and if you're reading that passage, and you say, this generation will not pass away, and, you know, until the world ends, you know. Okay, well then, yeah, we got a problem. Now, after Lewis quotes this objector, then Lewis says this. C.S. Lewis. This is certainly the most embarrassing verse in the Bible. Matthew 24, 34. Yet how teasing also that within 14 words of it should come the statement, but of that day and that hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, rather the Son, but the Father. The one exhibition of error and the one confession of ignorance grow side by side. (laughs) So I guess Lewis is saying, you know, he made an error, he was ignorant, uh, you know, this is... You can't say these things about the Lord and think everything is fine. Either He is God and He's absolutely correct in everything He says, or you're in trouble because you've got to determine what did He say that's right and what did He say that's not right. And here's the problem. Because of Lewis's physical view of the nature of the second coming, and maybe because he held the idea that he's talking about the end of the world, it hadn't happened yet. And therefore, Yeshua had to be wrong. And liberalism jumped all over this in the end of the 1800s. See, your your teacher, the Lord, was wrong. He said he was going to come back, and he didn't. Now, see, that in fact would be much more than embarrassing. It would be devastating to the credibility of Yeshua. If Yeshua was wrong, as Lewis says he was, you have to ask this. What else might he have been wrong about also? I mean... Didn't He say that if we believe in Him, we'd have everlasting life? Was He wrong about that? How do we know? If He's wrong about some things. Well, people, rest easy, Yeshua wasn't wrong. Lewis was wrong. That feels better, doesn't it? (laughs) We can count on the truthfulness of what Yeshua tells us. And we need to be thrilled with that. We need to be glad about that. We might not understand it, but to question His truthfulness... That's a problem. Now, others also had trouble with this verse. Of course, it's not only Lewis. The New Jerome Commentary says this. This is a troublesome verse. W. Robertson Nicole said, What is said therein is so perplexing as to tempt a modern expositor to wish it had not been there or to have recourse to critical ex." Expedience to eliminate it from the text. Man, I wish that verse. And see, that's what a lot of commentators do when they get a difficult verse, they just skip it. I mean, they're not gonna, when people are reading the commentary, they're not gonna be able to question it. Hey, why didn't you talk, why didn't you deal with this verse? You know? This verse doesn't fit in their eschatology, so they would just like to eliminate it. It's too difficult. And again, if you're thinking destruction of the world this would be very problematic. Okay? Very problematic. This verse is devastating to a futuristic eschatology. So let's examine it carefully and make sure we understand what Yeshua is saying. Let's start by examining the meaning of the word generation. Okay? In our text, generation comes from the Greek word genea, which means, by implication, an age. Now, in Thayer's Greek English lexicon of the New Testament we can see that Genea means the whole multitude of men living at the same time. Now I'm giving you a couple lexicons here. Keep this little, make a little note there because later we're going to read C.I. Schofield say all the lexicons agree with him and they don't say what this is saying here. Okay. Then we have William F. Arndt and Wilbur Gingrich, another Greek lexicon and they say this. Gedea, basically the sum total of those born at the same time, expanded to include all those living at a given time, contemporaries. That's one of the best understandings of generation there. Contemporaries. We understand that. Now, if you look at the way Yeshua used the word generation, I think it will be abundantly clear that He always refers to His contemporaries. The Jewish people of His own period, Let's look at a few uses of it. matthew twenty three thirty five thirty six so that on the way you may come all the righteous, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on the earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon, again, back up, he's saying to you, he's talking to Jews right here. He's in the temple i say to you all these things will come upon this generation so he's speaking to the jews in the temple and he says this judgment that he's been talking about in matthew 23 is going to come upon them now here's the interesting thing i don't know of one commentator one scholar who understands this is referring to anything but that generation that's how they take it he's re- talking to those jews he's saying it's going to happen in their generation problem no problem there okay It's when you put generation in a place they don't like it, then it has to mean something else, okay? Look at Luke 17, 24 and 25. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in His day. But first He must suffer many things and be rejected by His generation. What generation did Christ suffer many things from? What generation rejected Him? His generation, right? Right? That's clear. He's speaking of his contemporaries. Nobody else rejected him. Nobody else inflicted him at that time. He's speaking of his contemporaries. Now look at some of the, how some of the translations deal with Matthew 24-34. New English Bible. I tell you this. The present generation. That's clear, right? They wanted to make it clear. Today's English version. Remember this. All these things will happen before... The people now living. I like that. That's a good one. Uh, That makes it clear. Moffat, I tell you truly, the present generation. Weymouth, I tell you in solemn truth, the present generation. Again, this generation. Now these translations, I think, make it clear. The meaning of the word was that of the present generation at the time of Christ. Not a future generation, thousands of years away, so in etymology, the dictionary definition of the word, and usage, generation means those born at the same time, contemporaries. This is really important because a lot of times the dictionary, the etymology of the word is not used by the writers. And you've got to look at how a writer uses it. Well here, the etymology and the usage are both the same. Okay, Usage always takes precedent because words change their meaning. Here it's very clear. All right? How long is a generation? All right, This generation is not going to pass away, so how long is a generation? That's a good question, right? Well, John Walvoord says this. A generation is normally from 30 to 100 years. <laughs> He's the only one I know of that gives it that length, okay, that broad of a span. Most commentators see a generation referring to about 30 to 40 years. But more important than that, what's the Bible say about the length of a generation? Well, let's see if we can figure it out. Matthew 1. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. From the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. In this genealogical table, we have data to estimate the length of a generation. It tells us that from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. Now the date of the captivity in the reign of Zedekiah is said to be 586 B.C., so from 586 B.C. until the birth of Christ would be about 586 years. Divided by 14 makes the average length of a generation 41 years. Alright? Let's look at the writer of Hebrews. Hebrews 3, 8-10. Do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and saw my works 40 years, therefore I was provoked with that generation. That 40 year, that generation that lived at that time and said, they always do go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Look at Numbers 32, 13. And Yahweh's anger was kindled against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness for 40 years until all the generation that had done evil in his sight of Yahweh was gone. So they wandered for 40 years till all the generation was wiped out. So 40 years is a significant number in the Bible. I think we're familiar with that. Children of Israel wandered for 40 years before entering the Promised Land. New Testament saints also were in a transition period of 40 years before entering the New Jerusalem, which is above. From Pentecost to Holocaust, AD 70. David reigned for 40 years. I believe that Christ reigned from Pentecost to the destruction of Jerusalem was a 40-year reign which Revelation 20 refers to as the millennium reign of Christ. 40-year reign. Now, some have tried to twist the etymology of the word generation in Matthew 24-34. Let me say, even if you could twist the etymology, usage always takes precedent. You've got to look at the way it's used. But some people try to make Matthew 24 mean race. Okay, Instead of contemporaries, they say Race. And they try to make Yeshua say that all these things would happen before the race of the Jews passed away. So, as long as we still got Jews out there, we still got time, right? By doing this, they think they can expand the time of the second coming by thousands of years. But there is no biblical or linguistic justification for such a p- uh, position at all. Generation does not mean race. C.I. Schofield in his Bible's reference to this verse, Matthew 24-34, he recognized this. And he actually switched the definition of the word from that of genia to that of genos. This is his original Bible. They have fixed it. okay, Because they're like, oh, we're getting in trouble with this because some people are checking on us. Okay? Genos is an entirely different word. Schofield said this, Greek genea, the primary definition of which is race, kind, family, stock, so all lexicons. I just showed you a couple lexicons that show you that's not the meaning of the word, okay? Now listen, when someone says, all the lexicons say that, what are you supposed to do? Be a Berean and say, oh, let me go check that out. But most people just go, oh yeah, okay, they all say that, then you're right. And I think that's why people do this kind of stuff, you know? I mean, Schofield say, hey, it means this. All the lexicons agree. I can't find any that agree. Okay? So, he says that the word is used in this sense here is sure because none of these things, the worldwide preaching of the kingdom, the great tribulation, the return of the Lord in visible glory, and the regathering of luck le- occurred at the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus in AD 70. So he says, this must be the meaning because... This other stuff didn't fit, so we'll just switch it around. He switched the definition of the word geneah to that of ganas, which is an entirely different word. Ganas means race, geneah means contemporaries. He says, The promise is therefore that the generation, nation, or family of Israel will be preser- preserved until these things, a promise wonderly, wonderfully fulfilled to this day. What's he mean, wonderfully fulfilled? In other words, I guess he's saying the Jews are still around, so we got time. Listen, Schofield used the wrong Greek word with his definition. He did so because his view of the nature of the second coming. He said it couldn't have happened, so therefore this must be wrong. Instead of letting the Bible say what it says and try to figure out from there, no, let's just change some things. He had to change the meaning of the word, genēa. The definition he gives is for the Greek word genos. Genos is not the word used in Matthew 24-34. Peter used the word genos in 1 Peter 2-9, but you are a chosen Ganas. Not a chosen generation, you're a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Here it is evident that genos means race, nation, offspring. This is not the word used in Matthew 24-34. This quote by David Chilton is informative and I kind of like Chilton's style. He says, Some have sought to get around the force of this text, Matthew 24, 34, by saying that the word generation here really means race and that Jesus was simply saying that the Jewish race would not die out until all these things took place. Is that true? I challenge you. I like that. So take the challenge, okay? He said, I'm challenging you. Here's what I want you to do. Get out your concordance and look up every New Testament occurrence of the word generation in Greek, genea, and see if it ever means race in any other context. Here are the references for the Gospels. Just in case you're kind of lazy and you need some help, let me give you them. And he just lays them out there for you. Okay? So in other words, I'm all but spoon-feeding you children, saying, you know, come on people, do a little homework. Not one of these references is speaking of the entire Jewish race over thousands of years. All use the word in its normal sense of the sum total of those living at the same time. It always refers to contemporaries. In fact, those who say it means race tend to acknowledge this fact, but explain that the word suddenly changes its meaning when Jesus uses it in Matthew 24. All of a sudden, in this context, we got a whole other. Doesn't mean this anywhere else, but means this here. Let me tell you something about Chilton. Chilton was a partial preterist. He hated preterists. He considered preterists as heresy. He was always attacking preterists, and then you know what happened? He became one. What draws a man to something he claims to be heresy? How does that happen? He had to eat a lot of crow, you know, as well, you know. Of course, it wasn't long after that that he died. And so, of course, all the parcels were saying, see, God killed him because he went off. You know, And that's the same thing I heard uh, right after I became a preterist. We were flying to Florida to speak at a conference, and our plane crashed. And so people were saying, see, God tried to kill you. And I'm like, he tried? He's not, he's, he's not able to do that? I'm like, I don't know what kind of God you serve. But my God doesn't try to do things. He gets them done. What was the name of that movie we watched yesterday, Zoe? Yeah, the, some, the Olympians or something. And I'm laughing through the whole thing because I'm like, what kind of gods are these? These are weak, wimpy gods. Someone steals Zeus's thunderbolt and he doesn't know who did it. Well, you're not too smart of a god, are you? He thinks somebody... And I'm like... It's just so hilarious that this is the God of the Bible is all powerful, all knowing, can do anything. But these gods are a bunch of little wimps arguing and fighting with each other and they don't know one end from the other. <laughs> yeah. But because I'm thinking theologically as I'm watching this movie, I'm like, no, these are not gods. I did enjoy it. It was it was entertaining because I was like, wow. We don't have to worry about these kind of gods, that's for sure. But it was cool that the gods mated with earthly women and had offspring that were Nephilim. (laughs) They were half God, half human. So I'm like, they got a few things right. All right. How would I get off on that? All right. What Yeshua meant by all those things happening in that generation, including the parasy of Christ, was that they would all happen while some of the folks to whom he preached to were still alive just as He said they would be. Look at this verse in Matthew 16, 27, 28. For the Son of Man is going to come, parousia, alright, with His angels, He's coming with angels, in the glory of His Father, and He's going to repay each person according to what He has done. This is clearly the second coming. You can compare this to Revelation, same exact wording. Then He says this, Truly I say to you, who's the you? You, us, me, He's talking to His disciples. I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So He's got disciples standing there and the Lord says, some of you won't die before I come back. What are our options there? Well, maybe like Lewis says, maybe the Lord was wrong. He just got it kind of messed up and didn't know. Or... Some of these guys are still alive, okay? We've got 2,000-year-old disciples hanging out still waiting. Or third option: the Lord came back in the first century like he said he would while some of them were still alive. I don't know of any other options. okay? I don't the 2,000-year-old disciples, I'm not too crazy on that view. The Lord being wrong, I'm not anywhere near that view at all, okay? So the only thing left was, hey guess he did what he said. Look what he told his disciples in 10, 23. When they persecute you. The disciples, in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. If they're persecuting you, go to the next town. You're not going to run out of towns before I come back. That seems clear, doesn't it? Now, dispensationalist George Meisner tries to explain this generation this way. I want to give you some of the other side, what they have to say here. He says, because Jesus speaks of Jews who see all the signs of the end times, it is best to understand generation as those contemporaries living during the tribulation. See, I agree with that. But see, when he says tribulation, he's talking about in the future. He doesn't see it as already happening. So he says, the Lord's talking about the people that will be alive sometime out in the future. I mean, I could agree with him because I think that is right but they're not in the future. He says, This generation, then, is the Jewish contemporaries coexisting during Daniel's 70th week. They will see the 11 signs of Matthew 24, 4-24. In other words, all those who see all the buds of the fig tree or the signs are the antecedent of this generation. Well, the antecedent of this generation are the people he's talking to. The tribulational generation will by no means pass away emphasizing its existence throughout the seven-year period, events do not annihilate them. Jesus does not mean that each and every Jew survives. Over half of them do not. Yet that generation as a whole goes through the entire seven years till all these things are fulfilled. So he's saying that it doesn't mean Yeshua's contemporaries, but the generation that's alive whenever the tribulation starts, which he sees as sometime in our future. Hal Lindsey calls that the terminal generation. Now, along the same line, some say the generation Yeshua mentioned would be the generation following the events of Israel becoming a nation in 1948. You've heard that view, right? Then taking a generation as 40 years, they said that the second coming would happen in September of 1988. You remember the book? 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 88? I remember it well. I remember so clearly sitting on my mother's deck that summer reading that book and it was like, I think it was August and I'm like, oh, it's September. It's going to happen in a month. you know. We've got some things to get in order here. And I mean, it was compelling to me at that time. And then when it didn't happen, he says, 89 reasons why the rapture happened in 89. No, he did come out with a book in 89 trying to justify it. Then when that didn't happen, he just scrapped the idea and kind of went away. Hal Lindsey said, When the Jewish people, after nearly 2,000 years of exile, under relentless persecution, became a nation again on 14th of May. Now, he's got May here. I'm not sure if it's May or September. 1948, the fig tree put forth its leaves. Jesus said that this would indicate that he was at the door, ready to return. Then he said, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away till all these things take place. What generation? Obviously, in context, the generation that would see the signs... Chief among them, the rebirth of Israel. Hang on to that. Chief sign, rebirth of Israel. A generation in the Bible is something like 40 years. If this is a correct deduction, then within 40 years or so of 1948, all these things could take place. Many scholars who have studied the Bible prophecy all their lives believe this to be so. Guess what? Many Bible scholars are all wrong who study this all their lives. All right? Because Hal Lindsey says the cheap sign would be the rebirth of Israel. Where in Matthew 24 do you see anything remotely close to speaking about the rebirth of Israel as a sign? They ask him, what are the signs? He gives them nothing about the rebirth of Israel. It's speaking about the destruction of Israel, not its rebirth. Yeah. <laughs> He also says that within 40 years of 48, all these things could take place. Well, it's been over 70. And it's going to be longer. You know how I know it's going to be a while longer? The temple has to be destroyed. That's what's happening here, right? That's what they're talking about. Can the temple be destroyed now? Why? It's not built. What's on the site of the temple? The mosque. The mosque. So, first thing they've got to do is tear that mosque down. How long do you think that's going to take? You talk about a holy war? Once the mosque gets torn down, and they're going to have to wipe out all the Arabs, all right? then they build the temple, then it gets destroyed. So how eminent do you think this is? (laughs) At least a generation, okay? So none of this stuff fits. Another dispensational, Robert Deffenbaugh, he deals with it this way. I'm trying to give you all the different approaches here. In verse 34, Jesus said that this generation would not pass away until all these things had come to pass. The difficulty with these words should be obvious. To who? You know why it's obvious? Because he's thinking the end of the world. How can Jesus say that this generation would not pass away until all these things come to pass when all these things occur over what we could now see to be nearly 2,000 years? And I'm, not, I'm a little confused here, but he's seeing that the signs last for 2,000 years. In other words, a little bit of sign for every generation. He says, the events described in these verses encompass many generations. I don't, the Lord didn't say that. He said, he didn't say these generations, he said this generation. We'll see all them fulfilled in a lifetime. The difficulties with this verse have led some to attempt to redefine the term generation so that it may be taken more broadly to mean either mankind or Israel. I do not think that the context of Luke or the term generation itself, he says, no one generation will see them all, All will allow this broadening. And I agree with him there. he's He's sticking with the word generation because he sees that. He says, I believe that the generation was specifically, that generation was specifically in view. I agree. That generation had a particular privilege and a particular responsibility both related to being those who witnessed the coming of Christ that generation also had a particular judgment due to its rejection of Messiah. I got that, and he, you know, he sees it. I understand, therefore, that when Jesus said that generation would not pass away until all these things had come to pass, he was referring to that generation of Israelites. I'm with you, Bob. How then do we square this with the fact that all these things must come to pass when we know that some will, will fall upon generations to come? How do we know some are going to come later? He says, my best answer is that all these things, he says, we know that some of these things are going to fall upon generations, or later generations. I don't know how he gets that, but he says, my best answer is that all these things really happen twice. I mean, that's a good way to deal with it, I guess. Yes, all that happened. Yes, it's all true, but it's coming again, okay? John Bray used to say this. John Bray held a position. All the verses in the Bible speak of A.D. 70, okay? And the Lord's return. But he said, I still believe the Lord's going to return in the future. Don't have a verse. Don't have a shred of evidence. I just think it. I said, you can think you believe in green men all you want. Okay, that's fine. You know, it's just your opinion. Then later on, Bray said, it's the dumbest thing to ever come along. He goes, it's all over. It all happened in A.D. 70. Because he realized, you know, he was trying to hang on to something. There was nothing to hang on. He says, so... Bob says it really happened twice, not once. They will happen once to that generation, and they will happen a second time in the last days related to Christ's return. Thus, Jerusalem was sacked in AD 70 in fulfillment of our Lord's words, and so too Jerusalem will be trodden under feet of the Gentiles again during the tribulation. Wait a minute, why are we getting two things here? He says, there is also a sense in which much of what our Lord predicted would happen, persecution, betrayal by family, is something which saints have experienced throughout the intervening centuries. So I guess it's just happening a little all the way through. Our Lord's words then have relevance to those who heard him speak these words. And he's trying to do that. He understands they have to mean something to the people. They also have relevance to the saints over the centuries. Mm, Don't know how. And they will be relevant to the saints of the last days as well. They were because the last days were back then, not in the future. No one dares to take these words idly as though they will relate to a future people at a future time. Jesus does not allow this mentality to prevail. In other words, just keep it in mind. He's talking to you. Now let me ask you this. Does Yeshua say all these things will come upon this and that generation? Could He have said that? It's coming upon this generation. I want you to know it, but it's coming upon that generation too. He didn't say that. No, Yeshua here uses the near demonstrative. This generation. This one right here. Every time this is used in the New Testament, it always refers to something that is near in terms of time or distance. Yeshua doesn't say that generation, referring to a different generation than the one He was speaking to. But this generation, the very people to whom He was speaking. When determining whether to use the near demonstrative, this or these, or the far demonstrative, that or those, both the context and the noun must be considered. In Matthew 24, 34, the near demonstrative is used because the noun in question is generation. And it is indeed the very generation to whom Christ is talking. Therefore, it's natural and proper to indicate nearness... It was to come upon this generation, the very generation he was addressing. It seems we shouldn't even have to be discussing all this and arguing about all this. Okay, it seems clear. If I was to say to you, this building is being torn down next week, what would you say? Why? You wouldn't say which building. I'm gonna come down there and slap you. No, you wouldn't say which building. You'd say you might ask why, or what did it do? What you know, but you'd like I said this building. Why would you think it'd be this building? Because I said this one. If I was to say to you, that building is going to be torn down next week, what would you say? What building? What that? That's some other building. That's not this. It's that. Okay? You know I'm referring to the one I say this, the one here, the one we're sitting in, the one close to me. That building is something we don't, unless I give you a reference, you don't even know what it is. He has spoken about what will happen before the generation that He was speaking to would pass away, including the Great Tribulation. And a second coming. Again, he's talking to his disciples. This generation. Yeshua said all these things would be fulfilled in his generation. So that's the gospel being preached to all the world? Is the gospel going to be preached to all the world twice? He did it, then he's going to do it. Are there two abominations of desolations? Are there two tribulations? Is the Son of Man to return in the clouds twice? Where is one verse of Scripture to indicate Double fulfillment. Just give me some kind of verse. There's absolutely nothing in Matthew 24 to indicate a double fulfillment. Nothing. They want it to be true because they see it has to have some relevance to those people. But yet, it's still going to come sometime in the future. When Yeshua said all these things would occur before that generation was over, He was talking about everything that He had been discussing from verse 4 through verse 33. Verse 33. This included the second coming of the Lord Yeshua in power and glory. The disciples' question had been, when will your parousia be? And in verse 34 he says, this generation. If the Lord's teaching on the second coming doesn't agree with our concept of it, what should we do? Well, we can change our concept to line up with the teaching, or we can twist His words to make them fit our view. we got a choice. This is the Word of God. Let's not twist it. Let's not distort it. I agree. We might not understand. But let's seek to do that. Let's seek to understand. What is he saying? Henrik Meyer said that the second advent itself is intended to be included is likewise evident from verse 36 in which the subject of the day and hour of the advent is introduced. I think it's clear. Now before closing, I got a long time to go, but I'm just saying before I do. Okay. <laughs> I'd like to expand a little bit on the idea of generation meaning race. And we've already shown that this is not a legitimate translation of Geneah. But for those who attempt to translate this as race of Jews, will not pass away till all these things be filled, it has to be understood that there is no Jewish race today. Now, when I say that, I know people are like, what do you mean there's no Jewish race? Of course there's a Jewish race. Who do you think is over there in Jerusalem? The Jewish race, right? Let's talk about this now. I'm asking you to keep an open mind here, okay? Because I know most people believe today there's a Jewish race. All right? So if we can eliminate the fact that there is, then it's obvious that race doesn't fit. Of course, it doesn't fit anyway, but... Many people today still consider the Jewish people as a race. Numerous verses identify Israel in the New Testament prophecy in terms of their tribal associations. However, these associations do not extend beyond the first century. One example of this is Matthew 24:30. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. See, Christ declared that the tribes of the earth will mourn. After the destruction of Jerusalem, The nation of Israel after the flesh was scattered throughout the earth. Those that were not killed in the destruction were taken prisoner and they were scattered throughout the earth. And listen, they lost all tribal relations, all tribal distinctions. This scattering was made immutable due to the fact that all tribal genealogical records were destroyed with the temple in AD 70. If you don't have a record, A genealogical record. You cannot be a priest. If you don't have a priest, you don't have Judaism. Okay? The records were destroyed. The simple fact is that there is no existing Jewish race. I know I can say that all day long. Let me see if I can back it up. Consider the following quotations. The Encyclopedia Britannica, 1973. The Jews as a race. The findings of physical anthropology show that contrary to the popular view there is no Jewish race. Anthroponetic measurements of Jewish groups in many parts of the world indicate that they differ greatly from one another with respect to all the important physical characteristics. Okay, this is an encyclopedia. Britannica saying this. How about this one? Encyclopedia, Judaica Jerusalem. That sounds like it wouldn't say anything like that, right? It is a common assumption, and one that sometimes seems ineradicable even in the face of evidence to the contrary that the Jews of today constitute a race, a homogeneous entity easily recognizable. From the preceding discussion of the origin and early history of the Jews, it should be clear that in the course of their formation as a people and a nation, they had already assimilated a variety of racial strains from people moving into the general area they occupied. This had taken place by interbreeding and then by conversion to Judaism a considerable number of communities. Thus, the diversity of the racial and genetic attributes of various Jewish colonies of today renders any unified racial classification of them a contradiction in terms. This many people readily accept the notion that they are a distinct race. This is probably reinforced by the fact that some Jews are recognizably different in appearance from the surrounding population. That many cannot be easily identified is overlooked, and the stereotype for some is extended to all, not an uncommon phenomenon. Encyclopedia Americana, 1986. Racial and ethnic considerations. Some theorists have considered the Jews a distinct race, although this has no factual basis. In every country in which these Jews live for a considerable time, their physical traits came to appropriate those of the indigenous people. Hence, the Jews belong to several distinct racial types, ranging, for example, from fair to dark. Among the reasons for this phenomena are voluntary or involuntary Miscegenation, which I'm like, miscegenation, that's a mixture of races, okay? Involuntary mixture of races and the conversion of Gentiles to Judaism. So they're saying the Jews, they just got all mixed in and bred with all these other races. Callers Encyclopedia says this a common error and persistent modern myth is the designation of the Jews as a race. This is scientifically fallacious. From the standpoint of both physical and historical tradition, Investigations by anthropologists have shown that the Jews are by no means uniform in physical character and that they nearly always reflect the physical and mental characteristics of the people among whom they live. This is science, people. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. Who is a Jew? It's one who trusts in Christ. That's a Jew. That's a child of Abraham. It has nothing to do with racial distinction anymore. That's done. That's gone. You're a Jew by faith in Christ. A true child of Abraham. Today, being a Jew simply means one is of the Judistic religion or a convert to it, or else in the brotherhood of those who are. Therefore, being a Jew has nothing to do with race. I mean, you're familiar with a number of notable figures like Sammy Davis Jr. He's a Jew. Converted to Jew. Elizabeth Taylor. Tom Arnold. They became Jews by conversion. They call themselves Jews. John Bray, who has done very extensive work on this, says this. Many Christians do not know that the vast majority of so-called Jews in the world today are the Ashkenazim Jews, while the remainder are the Sephardim Jews. The Ashkenazim Jews have their background not, the nation, not in the nation of Israel, but a country called Khazaria, All right, which country at one time was the largest country in Europe. The settlers of Khazaria were Turks and Huns. In AD 740, King Bolan of Khazaria decided to adopt the Judistic religion for his country. A number of Jews were already living there. So he converted to Judaism along with all his officials, and the whole nation ended up being known as a nation of Jews. These people are no no relation at all. they just, oh, we're all Jews now, okay? In 970, Russia came in and dominated the situation, and the Khazars were scattered, many of them going down into Poland and Lithuania, where at the dawn of our modern civilization, the latest concentration of Jews were found. Today, the largest percentage of so-called Jews in the world have as their background this group, of people. Israel and Bible Prophecy by John Bray. That is very, like I said, he goes into great detail, very informative. Funken and Wagnall's new encyclopedia, 1970, says this. In 1970, the Israeli Knesset adopted legislation defining a Jew as one born of a Jewish mother or a convert. So if you're a convert, you're a Jew. Okay? H.G. Wells wrote this. There can be little doubt that the scattered Phoenicians in Spain and Africa and throughout the Mediterranean, speaking as they did a language closely akin to the Hebrew and being deprived of their authentic political rights, became proselytes to Judaism. For phases of various proselytism attended with phases of exclusive jealousy in Jewish history. On one occasion, the Idumeans, being conquered, were all forcibly made Jews. They conquered them and said, now you're a Jew, magically. There were Arab tribes who were Jews in that time of Mohammed and a Turkish people who were mainly Jews in South Russia in the 9th century. Judaism is indeed the reconstructed political idea of many shattered peoples, mainly Semitic. The main part of a Jew, the main part of Jewry never was in Judea and had never come out of Judea. So therefore, I think we can clearly and confidently assert. There is no Jewish race today. That there can be no such thing as a Jewish race, nor ever will be. The Jewish people were done in AD 70 when God said, listen, you will not obey me. You won't follow me. You won't keep my commandments. I am done with you. And He destroyed Jerusalem. That was the end of the Old Covenant. That was the end of Judaism. They have never sacrificed since. Judaism claims to go on today without sacrifice. That is the heart of the Jewish religion. You can't have Judaism without sacrifice. You can't have Judaism without priests. And you can't have priests without genealogical records, which we don't have today. You can't have it without sacrifices. Jews are done. Okay, people today say, oh, we got to, you know, he that touches Israel touches the apple of God's eye. I'm Israel. You're Israel. If you have faith in Christ. It's not about your, you know, what tribe you came from anymore. Because God said, I'm done with that. I'm shutting that down. And that's why he goes into Galatians and he makes it very clear. You're a child of Abraham if you believe in Christ. Alright? The Israel of God. Oh my word, my phone is talking to me. She's picking up what I'm saying and trying to... Woo! <laughs> oh, Google's listening in. Alright. These facts are devastating to dispensationalism. Alright? Obviously, if the nation that they call the heir of Israel is shown to have no relationship to pre-desolation nation, there's no credible credibility to that system. There are no twelve tribes today. There's no Jewish race today. We know that there's no possibility that this passage of the Olivet Discourse has any relation to a future Jewish race since there's no such thing. Since the fall of Jerusalem, The scattering of the nation Israel in the first century, the nation calling itself Israel, has consisted of a collection of people from nearly every nation in the world, with no relation to the twelve tribes of the historical nation known as Israel. And any attempts to state that there is or will ever be again a race of Israelites are proven to be futile and really have no force at all. There's no Jewish race. So as you can see, to try to translate the the word genea as race doesn't fly any way you do it okay bishop newton commenting on matthew 24:34 said this it is to me a wonder how any man can refer part of the foregoing discussion to the destruction of jerusalem and part to the end of the world or any other distant event when it is said here so positively in the conclusion all these things shall be fulfilled in that this generation it seemeth as if our savior was aware of some misapplication of his words. By adding yet greater force and emphasis to his affirmation, verse 35, he said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew 24 was a prophecy that has already been fulfilled, just like the Lord said it would be. And therefore, it has no future fulfillment at all today. It all happened in the generation that heard Yeshua speak these words. Yeshua said, in the days of Jerusalem's fall in A.D. 70, in Luke 21 these are the days of vengeance. God is taking vengeance on Israel and Jerusalem. Now watch, to fulfill all that is written. All prophecy was fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a culmination of all the prophecy, All fulfilled. Now some of it was fulfilled and ongoing, because we're living in the new heavens and new earth. It's going on today. But it happened at that time. It happened in the generation to whom Yeshua spoke. So let's not twist or distort Yeshua's words to make them fit with our views. Let's change our views to line up with His words. I think what He says here is clear. And like I said, we go back to Matthew 10, you go to Matthew 16, over and over, He stresses it. You know, if the Lord just said, I'm coming soon, you could say, ah, oh, what? But He said it in every way possible. And this is a strong verse. This generation, 40 years. And just so happens, from Pentecost to the destruction of the temple was 40 years. Just so happened. Coincidence. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I know this is a passage that causes much division, Lord, that people hang on to the future, and this is going to happen again someday or happen once in the future. Lord, I pray above all things, that you would give us the heart of Bereans. That we wouldn't accept what I had to say, wouldn't reject what I had to say, but we'd study it out to see if these things are so. Lord, I thank you for your grace to us. Lord, the encouraging thing to me about the preterist view is that you said something and it happened. You kept your word. We don't have to try to figure out how you didn't mean what you said. You said it, you meant it, and you did it. That gives me comfort, Lord. Thank you for your word. Amen. Amen. All right. Besides Google, anybody else got a question? Okay, go ahead, Mike. Okay, so I looked up the word. Uh, I looked up the word generation. Okay, in uh, Strong's importance. Okay. And it, it, it has in this verse, using that verse, it is Gen. Gen. Genia. 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 Okay. That's the one he's using too. Genia. He says it's getting it. So um, okay. So in, in uh, uh, Strong's has it trans says it's translated in the King James version forty two different times thirty seven times generation one uh, two times it was translated time two times age and one time nation. Uh, is it possible anywhere possible that that can be translated a different in a different manner that you shared it today? Well. Like I said, I, I think you know if you look at his uses of use of Geneah in Matthew, it's always talking about a contemporary thing. But let's say it wasn't. Let's say it did mean race. I hope that I've at least showed you that there is no Jewish race, so it doesn't matter either way. Okay. Well, All right. On that point, I would think. What about I mean, if you have to? Ask the uh, Arab today, you might have to view that. <laughs> well, yeah, again, but that's emotional. That's not scientific, you know. We're talking about, you know, I give you many quotes by anthropologists who say, listen, there's genetic markers for different races, okay? There's not. They've been so interbred. And that's why, you know, like I said, Bray's book is really good because you got to go in and see how when the Jews were taken into captivity, they intermarried. They intermarried before they were even in captivity, all right? And the Lord judged them for that. But they got so dispersed that there is no racial identity anymore or bloodline. To Abraham. Yeah, there's no bloodline to Abraham. They can't go back there. It's done. They they've so interspersed that it's just gone.
0: It's curious though that then they would be so culturally and culturally and religiously identify themselves as to go through the Holocaust and, and other persecutions even in just this last century. So how do we account for that? I mean, there's still certainly millions of Jews that consider themselves Jewish in spite of the fact that, that <coughs> persecution that, that still goes on.
1: You- yeah, there's a lot of people that do consider themselves Jews. And, you know, what they're doing, and a lot of these TV evangelists are trying to raise money to get Jews to go back to Jerusalem. They're getting them from all over the world and sending them back to Jerusalem. Uh, we we need to get into the whole thing of Zionism. That's just, a... it, that's just like religious persecution. The Christians get right. to persecution too for being Christians, not for being a race. I mean, the people went to the Holocaust because Jew- of their religious persecution, they believed you know, that religion was being attacked. Yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with race. Again, they, they identify as Jews, so... Yeah, it was the religion that they held to. I mean, they, whether they converted to it, whether whatever, but they're saying this is our religion now, and that religion is being persecuted.
0: And there's, there's got to be a strain or a seed in a lot of these people that comes through. I imagine that a lot of it has been wiped out, as they as say, through intermarriage. But still, there are enough people alive today that still identify as Jewish as to bring back this, this Jewish nation that seems to be a fulfillment of prophecy. God given these people this land. What fulfillment
1: of prophecy would that be? The, about to the Abraham. land, land the promise? Abrahamic
0: covenant. But, For all was made to
1: For Abraham Christ right. and seed. Right. That's the thing. If you go into Galatians, the promise was made to Abraham and his seed, singular, which is Christ. Yeah. So. The fulfillment of the prophecy come through Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. Only in Christ are we a true seed of Abraham. Only in Christ are we a true Jew. And Paul stresses that in the book of Galatians.
0: So the kind of thing, Israel, um being a nation now is just kind of a red herring. It's got nothing to do with the It's all just it a group of
1: people true. who identify with the Jewish religion. But again, it's not really the Jewish religion. It's not the religion of the Bible.
0: What about the Battle of Armageddon and the things that are still still supposed to take place, right? Well still yeah, to still him. to who
1: are supposed to I don't think they're still supposed to take place. I think they were all accomplished. Okay. And when you get into the Book of Revelation, it's highly figurative. I believe the book of Revelation is about the destruction of Jerusalem. It's divorce decree that God wrote to Israel and said, Here I'm done with you and it's about the destruction. And you get through the destruction. No, not there's nothing again, when you take the book and this is to me is so simple.
0: So you do not. One second. So you do not believe that um, there
1: will be this final battle. Battle's <laughs> over. The battle's yeah. over.
0: Somebody from the north. No, 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 happen. not at all.
1: Here's the thing. If we take the book of Revelation, okay, we don't know anything about it. Let's look at it. Okay, starts out. He's writing to, to these things will, will soon take place. Right. Who's he writing to? He's writing to the seven churches that are in Asia Minor. He names the seven churches. So that's who he's writing to. They were real churches that existed in Asia Minor at the time of the writing. So it's going to them. And he says soon. You get to the end of the book six times. He says soon, shortly, quickly. So the book is bracketed by time statements and it's written to people alive in the first century. How would they take it? They're under persecution. He's writing this to them. This is for us. All these things are going to happen soon. And for us to take that and say, well, we think it means, well, no, it's not, it's not your letter. Seven churches in Asia Minor. That's who he's writing to. But
0: isn't it kind of irrelevant if it's to the church? Uh, irrelevant to who? Happened? Irrelevant to who? To anybody after that point.
1: Well, the it was written to them. So here's the, here's the funny thing. We turn that on our head because people today say it had no relevance to them. It's all relevant to us. Well, wouldn't it make more sense to be relevant to the people it was written to and not to us? To us, us, it's relevant in the sense that it's all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All right. So it's profitable for us. And we learn a lot as we understand it and we study it. God told these seven churches what was going to happen. He talked about the destruction of Jerusalem. We learn from that. Just like many things in the Old Testament, people say, what's the point of studying that? But, David, couldn't it be beneficial to both them and us? Well, again, when, not when there's time indicators and not when it was specifically going to happen to them. Okay. See, if, I mean, I don't know how we take Revelation to us today because it's not talking about the destruction of the world. Mm-hmm. Revelation is about the end of Jerusalem.
0: Okay, what about the verse where it says um, the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world, mm-hmm. you know, before Christ comes? Right. Also so. so How do you interpret world, then? World didn't mean world. It only meant... the. Well, you have to, first
1: of all, what word are they using for world? And And I think it's cosmos cosmos there, okay? To the whole world, the cosmos, the inhabited earth, would be cosmos. And then
0: the end shall come. Right. That's
1: already happened. Paul said in Romans, the gospel's been preached to the whole world. He said in Colossians 1, the gospel's been preached to the whole world. It was the known world... It, it was not what we consider today their known world, the gospel had been carried throughout.
0: He said has been preached." Yes. The word, the word there is what yeah. which in their understanding was the Roman Empire.
1: Mm-hmm. So the, the whole gospel had gone out to the entire Roman Empire. And he said
0: he won't even put it going to the whole Right. he
1: says that in Romans okay. 1, he says in Colossians 1, the gospel's gone out. Okay, so yeah, I mean, most people think, well, the gospel hasn't been preached. Yes, it has. Mm-hmm. All right, got to wrap this up, but like I said, we can talk more about this. Uh, I'll sit down and talk with you. Add in the finitum agnosium. I'll keep going because I love this subject. And I mean, of course, we're talking about the Bible, I love to talk about it. And I appreciate these questions because I think like David said at prayer meeting, everybody in this room has been where you are at one
0: time. Mm-hmm. We've been in that yeah. seat.
1: We've been there. I mean, really. And I mean... Uh, pulling our hair out, you know, saying the Greek well, alphabet like under the, the bed, you know, uh, <laughs> I mean, just, you know, going going crazy over this, because when you first hear it, when you first hear it, it just sounds so crazy, yeah. you know, it sounds so heretic. crazy. My wife thought I was a heretic when I yeah. started talking about it. Well, my wife still thinks I'm a heretic, but. <laughs> Comprehension. <laughs> okay, um, let's, uh, well, wait a minute. I did have some something came in. Let me see if I want to... Oh, they don't get to ask questions. They have to be here to ask questions. What's Bob's Okay. Um... Uh, Bob Bob makes this comment. Christians today think it's all about us. We are the generation Yeshua is talking about. This is theological narcissism. Why do we think we're so important? <laughs> that's a good question. Again, audience relevance is a key to interpreting the Scripture. We have to know what did it mean to the people to whom it was written. Then we can apply it to ourselves, if we can. But we can't just, you know... I, I'll tell you, one verse that's so torn out, Jeremiah twenty-nine eleven. is it? I know the plans I have for you. I've heard every time I go to a homeschool graduation. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good. And, not for, and I'm like, read the previous verse. He's talking to the captives in Babylon. You're not in Babylon. He's talking specifically for them that he's going, you're in Babylon, but don't worry, I'm going to take you back to your land. How can you take that and take it to a homeschool graduation and say, God's got some wonderful plans for you? Whew context people context is king